Swivel. From Swivel Media and the Product Bus, this is The Bootstrap. I'm Scotty Allen. The Bootstrap is your source of news and resources all about building startups from scratch. This episode, I'm joined by Erin Clark of the Exchange Collective to unpack market positioning for bootstrap startups. But first, let's take a look at some things you should know. Here's the startup rundown for Thursday, the 16th of November. Great news for the Indigenous-led impact fund First Australians Capital this week, as ASX-listed company Block has backed them with a $3 million investment. According to Startup Daily, FAC has worked with over 800 Indigenous businesses and has leveraged over $70 million in capital to help them scale sustainably since its launch in 2016. The fund was founded by Ben Salo, a Wemba Wembo and Gunjamara man, as well as Brian Wyborn, a Torres Strait Islander man, to support the growth of Indigenous-run and led businesses. The founders have expressed excitement about the opportunities that Block's investment will provide, given that accessing funding has historically been a major challenge for Indigenous Australians. Psychedelics may be more than just the choice illicit hobby of some, as this startup hopes to use them to treat mental health problems. The University of Melbourne recently announced a syndicated investment of $4.5 million into Psyche Therapeutics, a startup that aims to use psychedelic treatments for severe anxieties such as PTSD, anxiety, and addiction. According to co-founder Professor Jerome Saris, the World Health Organization estimates that over 1 billion people are living with mental health disorders and new transformative treatments are urgently needed. Unimel's Vice Chancellor Professor Duncan Maskell stated that the university's latest round of investment aims to give its recipients the ability to engage in external collaboration and commercialize to promote growth. Victorian Envirotech startup Phantom, that's Phantom without the O, which I assume is a space-saving measure, has raised $2 million in seed funding for its plastic reduction platform, which aims to help companies understand and reduce their plastic footprint by using alternatives. Co-founder and CEO Elliot Costello explains that only 9% of plastics are recycled globally and says that Phantom's methodology of Assess, Reduce, Transition, or ART, is already assisting firms like Mecca and Starbucks Australia in reducing costs and tracking their progress towards becoming plastic-free. No word on whether pumpkin spice will survive the cuts. And finally, it's true. AI really is coming for us. Well, our jobs at least. Startup Daily recently reported that the Australian Computer Society's Digital Pulse 2023 report found that AI will disrupt up to 90% of Australian jobs. SES CEO Chris Vine said that forecasts from the report suggest that Australia is not on track to acquire the skills needed to utilize emerging technologies in this space by 2030. The report also found a lack of digital skills is costing Australian businesses $3.1 billion a year. Vine has stated that this year's Digital Pulse is a call to action to save Australia's tech industry from fading into obscurity, but surely there has to be an AI for that now. And that's the Startup Roundup for this episode. We'll be back in a moment. Market fit or positioning is the first key milestone on the startup journey 
And for bootstrapping founders, it's an incredibly important and challenging undertaking. With a limited budget for research and testing and shorter runways, many of the examples from the venture capital world simply don't fit the brief. So how does a bootstrapping founder approach finding market fit while navigating the wider startup ecosystem? To try and unpack this, I'm joined by Aaron Clark. Aaron is a commercialization expert who steers organizations in launching tech solutions with a focus on strategy, customer, and product. She's currently a director at the Exchange Collective and co-founder of the app Dark Story. Erin, welcome to The Bootstrap. Thanks for having me, Scotty. No worries. Let's get stuck into it. So when we think about market fit, what does that term mean to you, particularly when we're thinking about bootstrapping founders? I think in the context of market fit and bootstrapping founders is it's having such a good fit with the market, so the people where you sell your product, that the product effectively sells itself. Uh, So if you think about something like a fancy bottle of water, for example, that is not a product that you can sell to absolutely everybody. It's not something that you would sell at your local corner store, your 7-Eleven. So it's really when you think about market, it's thinking about having such a clear product in the right place that you don't need to sell it hard. So can you think of an example where you have observed market fit and that's either helped you learn how it works or how not to do it? So a really good example, I think a lot of people would have had the experience of buying a house and the process when you're buying a house is that involves verifying your identity. So people checking to make sure that you are who you say you are. There's lots of different products on the market that can verify someone's identity. But I worked on a project recently where the product was all about making buying a house easier, but it was all about making sure that that was firmly embedded in the customer journey. So not just go over here, do this thing, you've got to go to the post office, but just making it part of those interactions that you would have with a conveyancer when you're buying a house. One of the things that I think is really challenging for bootstrapping founders is ways to find that market positioning on a budget. Obviously, the more budget that you have, the more that you can do experiments that have a cost to them, whether that is an MVP or some other sort of intensive customer research. But what are some ways that bootstrapping founders can use it to find their market positioning without breaking the bank? Yes, you mentioned a minimum viable product. And one of the things that I'm really passionate about is using codeless technology. So if you jump online and just do a Google search for codeless technology, what you'll find very quickly is there's lots of different off-the-shelf solutions that you can do where you can quickly build a proof of concept. It might not do everything that you want end-to-end, but at least you can then take that to a potential customer and show them, is this roughly what you're thinking? Would you buy this? Would you not buy this? And ideally, in terms of testing that market fit, is coming up with part of the process that you could actually sell because the absolute best way to test market fit in those early stages is just to find one particular part or one particular feature 
that a customer would be willing to pay money for. Because what we find is that lots of people, if you show them a concept or a mock-up, they'll say, hey, that's great, but there's a big gap between someone saying that's nice and being willing to hand over their hard-earned dollars for something. I love that. I always think about the lean startup model where until we find that positioning, I, I don't love the term product market fit because it implies a, a state that I don't think you ever really achieve. It's like you find that position in the market that's working for right now. And I always refer to April Dunford's work on market positioning as a, a way to counter that. But in the lean startup thinking, until we find that market positioning, everything is learning. And I think that often what we do is we jump too quickly to thinking that we have the solution and investing too much time in building when really we can test the waters without a product. We can test the waters with a landing page. And what I find that often you find in that, and I think one of the things that you just said was really about finding a niche, is that often our ideas start off very broad. And when often when people explain things to me at the early stages, they'll rattle off six or seven different uses or different audiences that might work for this product. And that's partly because they're trying to make it as accessible to anyone that might be interested. The reality is, is that a scattergun messaging like that is unlikely to ever really take hold because people don't know what it is. They're like, I don't know if this is really for me. Whereas doing that learning to find that that niche. It might be one specific thing. It mightn't be the product you're thinking. It might just be a feature, or you might find that you're actually trying to solve something that might be a problem, but something that, as you said, people wouldn't pay to solve. So when we think about, I guess, those early learning stages, are there any particular tools or resources that you would recommend for founders to use or strategies to help find that without just jumping into building something? I think one of the things that I've found really helpful is engaging early and often with industry associations. So even if it's an idea or a problem or an opportunity that you're really passionate about is to have that really deep understanding about are you solving a, a problem or an opportunity that is applicable to an entire market. And I always think about the scenario of painkillers versus vitamins and engaging with an industry association. So whether it's you developing a tour product or a real estate product or whatever industry you're in, I've all of the different markets that I've worked across is the industry associations are a great way to speak across the different types of members as well. So when mm. you think about mm. a market and market fit, in any market, you typically have big players and small players. And that those early conversations with the industry associations can really help you in that segmentation side of things. So being able to chunk down and think about, oh, I'm not actually selling to the tourism market or the education market. Actually, I'm selling to private high schools and I'm only selling to years 7 to 10. I'm not selling to years 11 and 12. The product's not appropriate for primary school because of X, Y, and Z. So I would definitely recommend associations because even if you've got personal experience in an industry, that won't necessarily be something that is applicable to that entire market. 
Mm. Uh, one thing that I think is a real benefit of what you just described is that you are also picking up on language and even priorities that might be happening in that particular industry that you may not be familiar with. And one thing that I think often we think about validating the solution when first we've got to validate the problem and it is a case of if one client says, and I think this is a particular trap with software as a service where a developer can hear a problem from someone and think, oh, I could totally write something to solve that. And then what happens is, and I had this said to me yesterday, people have got something and they're like, no one else is doing this. And that to me is always a red flag because that <laughs> is like, hold on, how do you know? Because either, yes, there are, and you haven't done your research or no one's doing it because it isn't actually something that can be profitable. And so kind of really answering those questions, but also when you are validating the problem, Going to an industry body or to even if it's a, a government department, et cetera, looking at the language, the priorities that they're using helps validate what a client might be saying in terms of terminology. There's always that danger that you're building based on one context that could be an outlier. And you don't know that. And it might be an outlier simply in terms of terminology that they call something something that other people in that same business don't use. They're not using kind of standard terminology or processes. You can't make that assumption. So I love that. It's a great way to do that research and also a great way to educate yourself about what the pain points of the wider industry are that you might be able to articulate back to your leads in in a way that helps. I'm always trying to find that hair on fire problem. And so if you understand that, because sometimes it's incredibly clear and sometimes it is a, it's a nice to have, right? So, so when we think about, I guess, the difference between hair on fire and nice to have. What, what are some of the common mistakes that you see that bootstrapping founders make when they're trying to find that market positioning? I think it's that everyone falls in love with their products. And it's it's something I've been reflecting on a lot recently in some of the products that I work on is, is we fall in love with the products and we we lose sight of the customer and the, the hair on fire. I've got a product in the tourism industry at the moment and we've been focusing a lot on adding features, adding features because the users that we interact with tell us, like the developer, hey, I want this feature and we go, that feature's really easy, so we add this feature. Sure. But totally lost sight of hair on fire. Mm. And I think what this recent insight made me reflect on is that when your hair is on fire can change. So this tourism business started in the middle of COVID. So I think we're all familiar with what was on fire during Mm -hmm. COVID Mm -hmm. is not necessarily what's on fire now. Mm -hmm. And so it was only when I went and actually took time off and had a holiday. So I think that's great advice for anyone who's bootstrapping is that sometimes those moments of holding space for reflection Mm-hmm. And it was as a tourist and when I was standing in the shoes of our target customer that I realised, no, we're solving the wrong problem. And it was mm-hmm. when I was standing in the, the bustling streets of Kuala Lumpur going, this doesn't work, or one of our competitors, that I realised that 
it's really getting into not only are we solving a hair on fire problem, so really literally getting into the shoes of the customers. So walking, walking mm. where they walk and experiencing what they experience to go, is my hair really on fire? And when you're standing there, it's also to think about what are those alternatives? So, you know, we always think about our direct competitors. So if my hair's on fire, are we going to put it out with water? Is it going to be a fire blanket? Yeah. It's thinking about you're always focusing, oh, okay, I'm selling a fire blanket and there's lots of people with hair on fire. But mm. what you've got to think about is you're not just competing against the other fire blankets, you're competing against all of the different ways that you could put out a fire. And I think sometimes we we don't think in that broader thing. We're always looking at competitors and going, well, I've got slightly better features but it's really coming, always coming back to that customer and mm. thinking from that very customer-centric point of view of customers don't care about features. And this is where I think MVP and the way that we're, it seems to express itself now is becoming a bit of a blocker really for growth because the moment that you start building, you are it, it's impossible to not get sucked into, oh, we could do this and that and this feature. I had a demo with a client this morning of a product that it does a lot of stuff and it's great, except that in terms of the messaging, you can't see the forest for the trees. There is that that kind of piece of, yep, I get that. This ticks a lot of boxes, but what does this actually do? Like, what does this solve that isn't already being solved? Because that other stuff is great, but no one's going to buy the product for that. So what is the key thing that's going to make people go through the pain of adopting something new because they can see that it's actually going to solve a real problem for them and nothing, the rest of it really doesn't matter. And I think that that piece of listening to people and just starting adding features based on questions that people ask without really validating that is that like if they're not if they're not already sold, adding one feature that they name check is not going to solve it. And so you're better off putting your time in like does anyone want this right now in in the form that we have it that that then is someone who's actually got skin in the game where we can listen more to their requests because an extra feature isn't going to fix your problem if you're if it, you haven't found that so on the flip side of mistakes what are some good things that you've seen people do to find that market positioning the absolute gold standard i think is co-creation so if you can find your customer when you don't have a product the absolute gold standard would be to find an amazing first customer who can work alongside you and you build that product together. They're magical unicorns, but if you can rope them in, nailing that first customer who is savvy enough to give you feedback and also has an understanding of the broader industry. So I think we sort of ties into what we were talking about before is that magical first customer needs to be someone who has not just their own problem to solve, but they understand that how solving their problem would solve it for an industry as well. So they are able to work with you, not just as a first customer, just building something for them, but building it in such a way that it works for an entire market. So I would, I might, yeah, co-creation all the way. I might have a slightly different point of view on that in that I think you've got to understand the risk of developing with one client in that a lot of people actually, 
they don't know their industry. What they know is how the place that they work at works. And so sometimes when we sit outside an industry, we assume, oh, well, you know, you're an accountant. You must know how all accountants do things. And even in the maths and sciences, there's a lot of subjectivity. I think obviously if you've got that client on the hook that is super interested, you've got to be really clear about what you are doing. Are you co-creating a product with them with the goal that it will be scalable or are you doing a highly customized piece of software for their business? Because what I see, and at Product Bus, we work both with ideas only, and then we work with people in those next stages of how do we find additional customers, how do we scale, etc. And one of the big things that inhibits scalability is when development on a product has gone too far with mm. a single voice. So even if you don't have other customers, I think finding a way to triangulate the requirements of your co-creator. It doesn't even have to be, it could be an industry professional, someone else that's like, Hey, let's get a, let's get someone else in here that can be a bit of an independent consultant in this space, just to validate because it can be small things like language that if it gets hard coded, because you assume everyone does it this way can just be big blockers. Does that, am I making sense? I love it. It's interesting because what you've just spoken about is who we're good to have on, on your team. And this is some things as industry experts that we do that are just intuitive to us. And I actually spent a number of years working as a business analyst and doing business improvement. And one of the things that I take from, from my time in that space is using, if you have a look online, there's a whole pile of different process frameworks. So when you're talking, Scotty, about how might we check that one client's experience is applicable to an entire industry is you can quite quickly pick up for different industries. If you have a look around, say, if we're talking about finance or we're talking about construction, all different types of industries, most of them you'll find have what's called a maturity framework. So they're really good places to pick up some of the language that's used across a particular industry. And if you also have a look around, there's a whole pile of different process frameworks and what they kind of speak to is they take all of the different hundreds of different, thousands of different organisations and they take the language from all of those organisations and then describe those processes in a very simple way. And I mm. find that a really good way to get a really good understanding of what the flow might be in a particular industry. I might need to get some links from you yeah, and we might share them out because that does sound super helpful. It is that balance, I think, of working out. I think understanding change management is a really important part of understanding, like being able to kind of consult or develop in this space because you've got to find that difference between we're trying to solve a problem or we're trying to replicate something that we do in a pretty shabby way in a, in a workflow. I'll give you an example of something that really taught me something about this. I jumped into a software company and there were some custom improvements or developments that had been done for specific clients that were a niggling problem that I was handed. And one of the reasons they were a problem is because there was not a clear sign-off 
point of, okay, this is done. So some of them had been lingering for years. And then the client was like, oh, it's still buggy. And they just didn't have information about it. So I went out to one of these clients and they had had this process built and they kept saying it's really buggy. And when I, I said, explain it to me, then they were like, well, this isn't actually the way that we do it. And I, I was like, I obviously wasn't involved in the beginning of the project, but I don't understand how that could have happened. What, why doesn't this reflect what you do? And then the IT guy said, well, at the time that we had to hand in the process, nobody could agree. And so I just did it. And I'm like, right. So the bug here is not the product. It's you. But but you you can get to a point where they're just still like, oh, it's just so, so buggy. And you're like, oh, my God. So we assume that, oh, OK, yep, this is the way that you do this thing. And if you don't know any different, uh, but you're kind of understanding the dynamics, trying to find out like who in the organization is saying this. You know, you don't it's not like people are lying to you, but it is people that are giving you their version of the the truth and working out how we validate that even within a single client, because that that one has never left me. Where and and when the IT guy said that, they didn't go, Oh, silly us, it's us. They were still like, Yeah, so this is bad. <laughs> it was like I think there's another part, Scotty, there when you touched on organisational change management. And I think for for bootstrappers, to to simplify it to its absolute simplicity, is there's a lot in that organisational change management space that can teach you how to effectively polish a turd. So (laughs) if if you kind of think about, you know, we've sort of talked about MVPs and and those types of things as a as a bootstrapper, the product's the product. You know, particularly if you're using if you're using codeless, there are times when if the customer says I want it like that, you're like, well, hun, it's codeless. What am I going to do? And so you might not use the word no, but you can use those organizational change management principles to kind of rather than, so I think about experiences with with products and working with a customer, a client who wanted this fully automated customer journey. So they had this product, but they had grand visions of you would go to their website, you would plug in your details, it would magically do everything. And off you go. And I think what organizational change management principles can do is really help with some of those Wizard of Oz type adventures that you have when you're bootstrapping. But for those who haven't come across the term Wizard of Oz, it is exactly like the movie, which is you've kind of got this, this product and you know it's a little bit ugly because when you're bootstrapping, your first few products are always going to be ugly. That's normal. That's totally okay. And what you're doing is your your ugly product is sitting behind this nice shiny curtain, exactly like the Wizard of Oz. So mm-hmm. the person you want in your team is an amazing graphic designer. And what yep. you would and what that Wizard of Oz approach is is using some of those organizational change management principles to design processes that are part technology and part people. So from a customer journey perspective, 
they don't see that there's a little man running behind the curtain making it all work. Mm-hmm. All, all they've seen is that they've been consulted, they've got training, they've got communications, they've got shiny materials. That's they're in their language, which I think is one of those themes that we keep on touching on because one of those big things about organisational change management is communicating in, in the language that makes sense to the people who mm. use the product. Mm. So there's a whole pile of things because then it's thinking about selling something that's complete. So you're selling the training mm-hmm. material, you're selling the onboarding package, you're selling the product. Not only does it make it easier from an adoption point of view, you're going to keep customers longer from a retention mm. point of view. And it also means you can charge more because then you've got all of these extra beautiful add-ons. Yeah. I, I think this is one of the traps of software and also one of the traps for bootstrapping founders of spending too much time in the ecosystem going to events and incubators and things with VCs who are, they're not, if you have a product that isn't something that a VC is going to jump on, they're not going to say to you, don't do this, or it's never going to work like this. They say, yeah, cool. Come back when you've got some traction. And often what happens then is we go away and do add more features and we're doing more things instead of actually trying to work out who wants this, who will give us money for this. And sometimes the illusion of people when they say it's the Uber for X or it's the Airbnb for X, Uber when it started was an Uber. Uber was you literally call, talk to a human being, say, I want to go to this place and they booked a black cab for you to work out whether or not people would actually use a service like that. And then they built accordingly. Airbnb was literally, will people pay 30 bucks to sleep on an air mattress that we deliver to a place for that and a hot breakfast? Let's test it in areas where there's something happening, which means that there's pressure on accommodation. And so super manual ways of doing that, that I think that we miss and people want to build these product-led behemoths that, that somehow everyone just arrives at and starts throwing money out without actually doing the work of, you got to go talk to people. You might have to actually fake it and, or, or you, you sell a service, which you, your goal is we're going to automate this, but right now we're going to be hustling like mad behind the scenes when someone buys it to deliver in order to prove out that they do. Because if you do that and then you find, oh, wow, like we we could sell this faster than we could deliver it, then you've actually got a case for investment. Then you've got a case for even investing your own cash in the tech that does it. But if you if you people don't give you money when you're doing the man behind the curtain method, well, then you shouldn't be spending money on developing a, a shit hot piece of software. It's quite timely advice, Scotty, coming into Christmas because there's so many <laughs> events and and uh, bits and pieces. And I think, yeah, what you said about that ecosystem is really powerful because I, when I first started out, I realised that I could have a full-time job just being part of the ecosystem and not earn a single dollar because there's this event, that event, this breakfast, this dinner, that dinner. And what um, I learned from that is the types of people who are part of that ecosystem, there's a whole pile of different players who all have different agendas. And there's actually very few founders 
at so the when you look yes. around and you go to these events you'll actually realize very quickly that there's people who are part of the ecosystem who are paid to deliver services who rely on government grants as you said it's always to kind of think about as part of these ecosystems what's the transaction that's taking place because everyone's got an agenda some of them will align with yours fantastic great people yeah. have along but other people will have agendas that don't align to yours and it can be very easily to fall into pitch nights and be pitching and doing this and doing that. But, you know, there's a lot that's been said recently about that that standard pitch format really isn't helpful. If you're bootstrapping, your your options, you've only got a finite amount of time. I was actually having a conversation with someone about this last week. I said, you as a bootstrapper, you've got two options. You've got a finite amount of time and a finite amount of energy. Path one is you put your head down, develop a product for the industry that this person's in and prove it. So get the money in, get the runs on the board and then look up and see because we were talking about grants versus venture capital versus different things. So rather than thinking about as a bootstrapper, you don't need money, what is mm. it that you actually need and how might you get that? Your other option is to go down the VC route, but as a bootstrapper, you can't do both. You have to make a make a decision about are you going to grow a business that's got good fundamentals and then see, then look around and see if these are a fund that's aligned with with what you're after. Because mm. hunting in that VC space is a full-time job. I, I really appreciate that you said that because that is one of the reasons why this podcast exists and your broader why product bus exists. Because what I've seen firsthand is people where it's mostly unintentional, but there is a real predatory element to this ecosystem where people can go to stuff for a great deal of time and and maybe they're waiting for something magic to happen that isn't going to happen and they actually just need to get out there and do it themselves with product bus where part of our goal is we want to do ourselves out of a job if somebody is still working with us as a fractional product manager after a couple of years we want to be able to go home what's happening here like you know probably you shouldn't be spending money on this if it's not growing or we should be moving towards you hiring your own resource here because we don't want to I, I actually you know what i think it is i think that what the ecosystem uh, one of the issues with the ecosystem is it does not actually respect the investment of the bootstrapping founder because the goal of you know, most of the events are run by and incubators are run by people who've got money and it's more, you've got to really do your research, as you said, about the agendas and what's the point here is that for them, it's a volume game. They need as many to be able to look at as many ideas as possible because 90% of them are going to reject outright and 90% of the ones they do invest in aren't going to make money. And so it's a numbers game and you've got to understand that and not wait for something magic. And I feel like when a, a bootstrapping founder that might have a bit of money to put into it, it's such a trap to think I can just throw money at that and make a, and, and make a thing. Wow, we, we've definitely we've gone to a broader convo, which I love. It's, it's, it's great. <laughs> and, I, and I think is that I, I, I think we've articulated the problem. Then I think the flip side is what is then the solution? Because as a bootstrapping founder, 
it's also quite isolating. So, and what's also spoken about a lot is you are the five people that you surround yourself with. And one of the things that I've, I've worked for me is I've been fortunate enough to connect with some absolutely amazing founders behind closed doors. And they're a very small, tight, amazing network of fellow founders Mm. who we connect online and then we catch up once a month behind closed doors to share our experiences. So very much sympathy. But what we're able to do as well is share insights across industries about what's working and who's working well for us. Mm. And they're, you know, very much your right eye die people. Yes. So those types of events are not gonna that's not gonna be where you find your right or die people. As you said, Scotty, they're they're the numbers game. It's gonna give you lots of exposure to lots of different people across lots of different industries solving different problems. Mm But as a founder, you need to kind of have connections with your industry. You need to have connections with your customer. You need to have connections from whatever your technology stack is, whether it's codeless or or not. Mm. There's always going to be an element of product to, to what you do. And then thinking more holistically about you're going to have connections from your sales and marketing side of things. And then also thinking about holistically who is it that's going to help you in that strategic space as well? So really, because you're the founder, and I think one of the things that that I learned is it took me a few years to realise that, crap, I am the person in charge. Coming from a consulting background is I'm used to asking people what they think, Mm -hmm. what they feel, what their opinions are, those types of things. As a founder, I think the way that helps you navigate you know, all of these different conversations with stakeholders is have a really clear roadmap. Where are you as a founder headed? And there's always a tension there because you don't want to be headed away from where your customers are. No. But if you know where your customers are, if you know what problem you're solving and you're confident that someone's going to pay money for that, Mm. have confidence in that because all of these different people with all of these different agendas will say, how about this feature? How about this program? How about this? How about that? And Mm. then that you sit down with your roadmap and go, okay, I'm looking at my five-year roadmap. Does this program, does this opportunity, does this deal, whatever it is, does this fit with my roadmap? Yes, no. Yeah. Which I think all of this all fits into that market positioning discussion because part of what what you spend your time on in these early stages is what you should be spending your time on is talking to the people that you think are going to use and buy your product. And they aren't at those events. It doesn't mean never go, but it is a, I think that we've got to just understand realistically what things exist for. It's like now we have community managers and I apologies to anyone who has that title, but I am very skeptical of what that actually means because it really, it's like a cruise ship director, somebody that's there to kind of schmooze and do do what? Ultimately make you spend more money or invest more in the organization. And and I feel like it's a really misleading term because at the end of the day, your community needs to be your community of users and and buyers. And you're not going to find your ride or die people in that in that space either. So really spending time 
talking to actual potential customers. And it, it's so easy to make assumptions, right? You, you Going right back to validating the problem, not just the solution, is that you people, they're like, oh, yeah. I, I see people all the time like, oh, yeah, this is totally broken. No one's doing this well. And sometimes you listen to it and you go, the premise is wrong. Like the, the 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 premise that is built on, I haven't even seen the product yet, but the premise that you built this on is actually wrong because that's not true. There's actually a flip side to that too, is that the customers will also tell you things that they love that you didn't realize were really powerful. And that's one of the things of being in a um, selling, at the moment I'm selling a product that is 100% online. So we don't interact with our end customers at all. Mm-hmm. The whole end-to-end journey completely online Uh, most of our sales go through third-party resellers. So we don't have a lot of customer intimacy. So the way that we solve that problem is by doing events. So we host our own events Mm -hmm. as a way to interact with with just general general public. Mm -hmm. And recently I had the pleasure of taking out a, a group of customers who are using our product. And I had the best day because I forgot because I was so focused on, again, features and marketing and this and funnels and all of the all of the things that all of the books and everything tells you <laughs> to do, that I, I forgot about some of that elemental delight of what is it, you know, we sell this product and people love it and why do they love it? And so now as I'm working on some, some marketing campaigns is coming back to what was it that delighted those customers? What is it that they absolutely loved? So coming in back and looking at features and going, and this is, again, this the feature is the features they loved were the really simple features. So this kind of speaks again to look at what delights your customers. Is it the features that you've spent a lot of time and effort that are technically difficult AKA expensive because mm. the features that these these customers loved were the really cheap ones. <laughs> so what what I took away from that was doing more of what's working. So rather than sometimes we can get really, really wrapped up in that, oh, it doesn't do this and it doesn't do that. Mm. And just take delight in what are the things that are working well and how can we do more of that rather than stressing about the things that we're not doing. Mm. That's fantastic. What is, just to wrap up, because we have had a fantastic discussion, if you were going to give one piece of advice to a bootstrapping founder about market positioning, what would it be? One of the things from a market position point of view is don't go hard down the brand journey. So I think there's a standard formula when we think about starting up where it's get your logo, get your Mm -hmm. colors, Mm -hmm. all those types of things. And we kind of think about having this forever brand and we've got to get the forever brand right because once it's in market, we're going to be, be stuck with it. And I think having something that is quick, and can flex quickly and it's jump online and have a look at some of those uh you know what amazon's logo used to look like what apple's logo used to look like there's so many great examples of sometimes we can get really wrapped up in the brand and the the marketing side Mm -hmm. the colors and and those types of things but it's the language and it's the relationships and it's how people feel that that's important not the colors 
um, not your website. It's about that warm, fuzzy feeling that customers feel because you've um, their hair's no longer on fire. Mm. That is fantastic advice and a great thing to end on, Erin. Thank you so much for your time. Fantastic. Thanks for having me, Scotty. You can find out more about Erin Clark at theexchangecollective.com.au. And that's it for the bootstrap for this week. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe or follow the show wherever you listen. And of course, we'd love a positive rating and review to help others find the show. Even better, share the show with a friend or anyone who will listen, even if you don't like them. We now have our own LinkedIn page. Just search The Bootstrap Startups from Scratch, and we're working on the rest of our social media presence. But for now, you can find the product bus on most platforms and interact with The Bootstrap posts there. We'd love to hear from you. The Bootstrap is a production of Swivel Media and the Product Bus. It was developed by me, Scotty Allen, and Declan McGee. This episode was produced and written by Declan McGee. We were edited by Sammy Perriman, sound design and mixed by Rob Clark. If you're an early stage founder looking for resources and practical help, check out theproductbus.com and get in touch.